Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Michael Cunningham and Adam Wheeler. Hello. Hello. So today we're talking about the last prompt in the 2021 Books and Bites Challenge, books set in your home state. Michael and Adam, what do you consider to be your home state? I would definitely say for me, Kentucky. That said, I have not read a whole lot of books set in Kentucky, (laughs) unfortunately. Well, I would consider, I was born in Tennessee, but mostly grew up in Alabama, so I pretty much consider Alabama my home state. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's, doing some digging, there's quite a a lot of books set in Alabama. Mm -hmm. And there's always that big one that everybody knows about. (laughs) Right. To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes. Well, I was born and raised in Florida, so that's what I consider my home state. And there aren't a whole lot of us Florida natives, but I actually come from a family with many Florida natives. So I'll be talking about the less touristy (laughs) sides of Florida. And we are, of course, ending this year's challenge, the 2021 challenge. What was the challenge like for you this year? Did you have a favorite book you wanted to recap about? Probably my favorite was a couple months ago when we did the, um, what was that, the non-human perspective. The Last House on Needless Street by Catriona Ward was one that just kind of blew me away. It's one of those with really heavy twists that you can't, really, you can't really say much about the plot without giving anything away, but I highly recommend it. Probably my favorite book of the year. Okay. Oh, yeah. So for me, hands down, is the book that I just talked about last month in the Comfort Reads episode, which is Witch Hat Atelier. I have been gushing about it to anyone who will listen, <laughs> much to their uh, chagrin, probably. but it just has the best illustration it's so beautiful this story is so interesting it really takes a a magical world and runs you through it in a way that at least I haven't really experienced before because it's about you know little girl (laughs) learning witchcraft but it's more about her making friendships building relationships learning about the ways that the world isn't the it's not always what you expect and how right and wrong is really great. It's just, it's a really emotionally challenging read in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It's great. Yeah, that one sounds good to me too. And um, just a sneak peek, one of our challenges for the 2022 Books and Bites Challenge is to read a book of manga. So I may I may pick that one up for, for that particular challenge. Yeah, yeah. We actually made a deal, didn't we? <laughs> we did. We included manga as a category so we could have historical fiction? What was no, biography? biography or autobiography. Yeah, or biographical fiction, right? Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. the deal we made. Yeah. <laughs> so I will be doing biographical fiction, hands down. Yes. Biographical fiction? Oh, wait, no. Yeah. No, it wasn't biographical fiction. It was biography or autobiography. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, 
there's this ridiculous book I read a few years ago where like Cleopatra is some kind of werewolf creature possessed by a god. Nope, nope. Ah, come on. <laughs> this is why I had such a hard time this month. I don't read things in realistic settings. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I actually think my favorite book was last month's too, and that was Early Morning Riser by Katherine Heine. But I also, <laughs> Adam cracks up every time I say Katherine Heine, just for... <laughs> Catherine, if you're listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I, I realized in looking back at my list that I actually read two books by Kazuo Ishiguro. I read The Buried Giant, and I also listened to Clara and the Sun, and I really enjoyed both books. And they were just completely opposite. I mean, just very different from each other. One was from the point of view of a robot. And one was took place in Arthurian England. So it just really, one of the things that I love about his writing is how different he is able to, you know, different settings, different times, all of that stuff. So I would also recommend checking him out if you haven't. Yeah, I remember you talking about those. They both sounded really interesting. The what was the, what was the title of the one with the giant? The buried giant. The buried giant. So that one sounded really interesting because it takes like this idea of a mythical quest that you always have, like some young dope go on, but it, it has like a an older couple mm-hmm. going yes. right, which mm-hmm. is really unusual to me. A whole mm-hmm. new story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. While born in Tennessee, I grew up in Alabama, which has a larger literary footprint than you might think. Just to name a few, you got Groom's Forrest Gump, Flag's Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe, and of course, Harper Lee's classic To Kill a Mockingbird. My recommendation this month actually involves Harper Lee and the true crime book she never published. Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee by Casey Sepp explores the sordid tale of the Reverend Willie J. Maxwell his lawyer, Todd Randy, and later his killer's lawyer, and the writer, Nell Harper Lee, who finally found the story that would hopefully bring her that elusive second novel. After serving in World War II, Willie Maxwell arrived back home in Nixburg, Alabama, near Alexander City. Shortly after returning, he married a girl named Mary Lou Edwards. In 1970, Mary Lou was found dead sitting in a car on the side of the road, beaten to death. The facts didn't add up, and the Reverend was indicted and finally charged with her murder, but never convicted after a witness and next-door neighbor recanted her statement. In a crazy twist, that witness goes on to marry Willie Maxwell the following year once her husband succumbs to ALS. Then she's found dead in a car on the side of the same road. Then Willie's brother was found dead, his nephew, and finally a stepdaughter to his third wife. You heard that right, a third wife. Investigations into the Reverend over the years turned up that he'd taken out life insurance policies on all of his suspected victims and probably many others and had gone to court to collect his money. The rumor mill started churning, spreading throughout the town that the Reverend was actually a voodoo preacher and has supernatural powers since the cops and forensic labs couldn't find anything conclusive to convict him in court with. And during the funeral for his stepdaughter, Shirley Ann Ellington, it all cut up to the Reverend when Shirley Ann's uncle Robert Burns stood up in the pew in front of Reverend Maxwell and shot him three times in the face, killing him in front of 300 witnesses. 
Tom Radney, the former lawyer for Willie Maxwell, became the lawyer for his killer, Robert Burns, and defended him for, for a trial that drew the attention of the entire country. And once Harper Lee catches wind of this tale, she finally thinks she might have found the inspiration to write a true crime book of her own, like her friend Truman Capote. This book delves not just into the life of Willie Maxwell, but also chronicles Tom Randy's and his highly successful law career following his idealistic political career to bring liberal politics to Alabama, as well as a fiercely private yet complicated life of Neil Harper Lee and how she brought to life to Kelly Mockingbird in her integral part in Truman Capote creating In Cold Blood. Part true crime saga, part biography, this book shows how three fascinating Alabamians all intersect in a complex tale of true crime. Now, so Michael, my first question is, are you sure you didn't read this last month for your comfort reads? <laughs> yes, I had, growing up in Alabama, I have never heard this tale before. Oh yeah? Yeah, I never heard the story of Willie Maxwell and I was shocked of ev everything he did. And pretty much got away with until someone said enough. <laughs> yeah. So that you, that is a true crime book. So yes. Okay. Yeah. I feel like I've heard of it. Re was it published recently? It came out in 2019. Oh, okay. That was when you know I think people when 2015 was when Ghost at a Watchman was finally came out, and then everybody's. I think when this book came out, I was like, oh, she has another published true crime book and rumors started spreading that she's got it stashed away somewhere and mm -hmm. is it ever going to get published. So no one really knows because mm -hmm. there are a couple of chapters that the Radney family has and no one quite sure knows if the others even exist or if it's only those couple of chapters or what. So mm -hmm. it's very interesting. Yes, she was definitely a writer of mystery, wasn't she? Yeah, she's very private. And mm -hmm. she tried everything to get that second novel and just couldn't couldn't get it or didn't think it was good enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a lot of pressure, though, yeah. I think, to have publish your first book be <laughs> To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> yeah, I think she was under a lot of pressure. And there was, she she went through a lot of, like, you know, tragedies her family was getting sick and her mom and you know Truman Capote mm -hmm. when he passed so so yeah but it's very she's a, she, she had a very interesting life and did you have a I, I, yeah um, <laughs> this this is a good one so I paired with this book is Harper Lee's very own satirical recipe for crackling cornbread that she contributed to a book called The Artist and Writer's Cookbook in 1961, which can be found also on foodandwine.com. Her recipe is as follows, quote, first, catch your pig, then ship it to the abattoir nearest to you. Bake what they send back, remove the solid fat, throw the rest away, fry fat, drain off liquid, grease, and combine the residue called cracklings with one and a half cups of water ground white meal, a teaspoon of salt, one teaspoon baking powder, one egg, one cup of milk. Bake in very hot oven till brown, about 15 minutes. Result, one pan crackling bread, serving six. Total cost, about $250, depending upon size of pig. Some historians say this recipe alone failed the Confederacy. End quote. <laughs> While this recipe is not at all practical, it does sound pretty delicious, right? 
I mean, it's hard to beat bacon fat. <laughs> I know. I mean, anything in bacon fat is delicious. Just about. Trying to wrap my head around how greasy that bread would be. But, you know, was that a cornbread? Is that what she said? Crackling, yeah. Yeah. Crackling so cornbread. I guess the cornbread will do its job and yeah. just sop it all up. You know? Yeah. Let me take down the Confederacy. <laughs> Did, what did you say? It took down the Confederacy? Yeah, she said, and uh, she said, some historians say this recipe alone failed the Confederacy. Ah. Uh, failed. Failed. Yeah. Failed. Okay, I heard failed. <laughs> okay, failed. I got I get, It makes more sense now. I got you. Sorry, yeah. that Southern twang. Uh, failed. Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> book I wanted to talk about is Ivory Shoals by John Brandon. As a native Floridian, one of my pet peeves about books set in Florida is that they often adhere to the cliche that the state is weirder than any place else. Only Florida could yield the Florida man, or so the thinking goes. (laughs) I choose to believe an article I read not too long ago via LitHub. In it, Tyler Gillespie claims that the abundance of Florida man stories actually owes more to the state's open records laws and journalistic conventions than to above average weirdness. I've lived in Florida, New York City, Louisiana, and Kentucky, and no place has been without its share of weird. One of the things I love about fellow native John Brandon's writing is that, yes, the characters do weird things, And I would argue that all interesting characters do weird things, but it never tips over into cliché. You can tell that he knows both the landscape and his characters. Ivory Shoals is an adventure story and a coming-of-age story with the dark humor and suspense of true grit. The novel takes place in Florida just as the Civil War has ended. 12-year-old Gussie Dwyer's mother, a prostitute, has just died after a long illness. Gussie has no other family that he knows of except for his father, who doesn't know he exists. Gussie plans to collect his mother's savings and travel across the state from his home in Jacksonville to his father's home north of Tampa. When the brothel owner refuses to give him the money, Gussie steals from the bar room's till, knowing that he'll have to outrun the bounty hunter who will be sent after him. Gussie travels mostly on foot, braving a perilous swamp in an effort to lose his pursuer. Along the way, he encounters swarms of mosquitoes, cottonmouths, alligators, and a bobcat. Humans also pose danger. In addition to the bounty hunter, there is a gang of thieves and his own half-brother who will do anything to protect his inheritance. But Gussie also encounters women and men who help him, including a formerly enslaved person, A.C., and several women who are living on their own. As a gun-packing granny tells him, quote, came to understand there ain't nothing to fear but men. No stinging thing, nor no sickness, nor no devil's weather. Them things get you by accident. Men, on the other hand, you know well as anybody, they out there hunting you. Unquote. Told in the third person, the novel primarily focuses on Gussie's point of view, but also shifts in some chapters to the bounty hunter, Gussie's half-brother, his father, and his father's servant. 
The less sympathetic characters are just as well drawn and complex as Gussie, the moral center. The setting itself is like another character, rendered in surprising, specific language. Here's one of my favorite passages from when Gussie finally reaches the Gulf Coast. Quote, the new land Gussie forged into was one of brackish rivers overlooked from high perches by princely osprey. Always the pine, always the sun, patches of marsh, the rivers splitting into canals lined with red-rooted mangroves. And here on the air, yes, unmistakable, was the scent of the sea, the scent that had so long now been only a memory, a kelpy sweet brine carried to and past Gussie on a breeze delicate as silk ribbon, the smell of home and of heartache and of everything, end quote. As in many quest stories, Gussie subsists mostly on trail food like nuts and jerky but occasionally he partakes of a real meal, such as beans or the swamp cabbage stew he eats at a tavern. Swamp cabbage stew was a once popular Florida dish made from the heart of a sable or cabbage palm tree. Since you have to cut down a whole tree to get the heart, and since the sable palm is the Florida state tree, you won't find many opportunities to eat fresh swamp cabbage. You can, however, buy canned hearts of palm in most grocery stores. According to Food 52, the canned hearts of palm are harvested not from single-stemmed palms like the sable palm, but, quote, from multi-stemmed farmed palms in Costa Rica, Ecuador, and Bolivia, unquote. I have eaten hearts of palm before, but it's been a while. Sources compare the flavor to a mild asparagus or artichoke heart and say it is equally good in salads and cooked dishes. Sever.com shared a swamp cabbage stew that sounds pretty yummy. It's based on a recipe from the book White Trash Cookery by Ernest Matthew Mickler, and it calls for bacon, hearts of palm, crushed tomatoes, jalapeno, and other herbs and spices. And we'll link to the recipe on our blog. Yeah, that sounds interesting. You know, I'd never really considered where hearts of palm come from. Like, you'd think it'd be, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's from a palm tree, obvious, because it says palm on the can, but... Yeah. <laughs> didn't really think of it yeah with it tasting like asparagus i have to ask does it also make peace <laughs> the way asparagus does uh, that is a good question That's maybe good question. maybe we okay. should try out the recipe and yeah. uh we'll do it for science <laughs> give it a try yeah <laughs> As for the story, you know, I have spent a few summers with family down in central Florida. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine tramping through Florida wilderness, especially if it was in the summer. That sounds miserable. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the mosquitoes, like just the descriptions of the mosquitoes Mm -hmm. attacking him and, you know, not having... Any insect repellent, that alone would be sheer torture, I think. Yeah. But this writer, I've talked about him before with a book, Citrus County. Yeah, which is a very different, I mean, they take place in similar areas, but this this one was historical. 
whereas Citrus County was not. But yeah, so it was kind of another case of two very different books, but but still very good and just interesting how they managed to make them so different. But I I, th- I think it still had some of those elements of suspense and adventure and, you know, characters who, I mean, Gussie was a good character, but there were a lot of unsavory characters that he sort of delves into. Yeah, so. I think you had a quote in there that sounded really beautiful and descriptive. And I, I don't know how to, it, it almost sounds kind of like, languid <laughs> but in a nice way mm-hmm. uh it, it makes me think of when in oh blanche Devereux and the golden girls would go off <laughs> on one of her like uh, <laughs> uh kind of wordy expositions but nice i don't mean that in a mocking way you know Maybe you are, are you listening john brandon you just got compared to Oh, God. I've insulted two authors now. (laughs) (laughs) To Blanche Devereux. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. To submit your responses for this month's prompts, visit us at jesspublib.org forward slash books hyphen bites. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can learn more about Scott and his music on his website at doorforadesk.com.